You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis chapter 11. We'll be reading the entire chapter again. We're going to take Genesis 11 in one unit. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all of the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Opraxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Orphaxad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. And where Orphaxad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Orphaxad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Rehu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Rehu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. And Rehu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Rehu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Aaron died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died 
in Haran. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning as we come to uh, this uh, passage of Scripture. We pray, Father, and ask that you would be pleased to bless us with uh, understanding that, Father, you would meet us uh, uh, each where we are, Father, and that you would give us instruction, but not simply instruction, Father. We pray that you would apply this word to our lives in such a way, Father, that we'd find ourselves being changed by it that perhaps we would see new things and new aspects of your glory and uh, perhaps we would see new aspects of, of our sinful tendencies, Father, uh, in this text. And Father, we pray that this would be an encouragement to us, that uh, you would empower us, O oh Father, uh, to, to draw closer to you and to walk closer with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, in our text this morning, we come to a turning point, uh, really a, a turning point here. One of the burdens of this chapter really is to um, make a bridge between a focus on all of the nations, if you will, uh, to take that focus from all of the nations to focus on one particular person and one nuclear family uh, of that particular person. For the next several chapters, we will be focusing at this point on Abram, who will be later called Abraham. Uh, chapter 11 is really a bridge to that point. And this shouldn't be surprising to us because in Genesis 3.15, we're promised a son, aren't we? And someone might say, well, you're always bringing up Genesis 3.15. And I'm always saying you're always bringing up Genesis 3.15. Well, Genesis 3.15, of course, is the first utterance we have of the gospel. And the gospel is indeed the big thread that flows through the entire Bible from start to finish. Introduced to us in Genesis 3, right on the heels of the fall of mankind. And it runs all the way to the very end. That's why I'm always bringing up Genesis 3.15. Second reason I'm always bringing up Genesis 3.15 is because I want you to always be bringing up Genesis 3.15 when you read your Bible. And you'll see amazing things as you do this. So Genesis 3.15, we're promised a son, and this promise of a son is really largely that thread that, that weaves through here. And we're reminded that it's not out of a vacuum or thin air that Jesus comes to us. It's not out of a vacuum. It's not just out of thin air. The promised son with an uppercase S comes to us in the context of a family line or a genealogy. Now, this has been presented to us in a number of different ways, usually in the form of a contrast. Now, you've probably already picked up on that. There's Cain, and in contrast, there's Abel, isn't there? Then there's Cain's descendants, and in contrast, uh, we have Abel. Abel was slain by Cain, but then comes along Seth. So in contrast, Genesis 5, we have the people of God, don't we? And then we get to Genesis 6, and we have this contrast of, of, of uh, worldly humanity, right, for judgment. In contrast to that, we have Noah uh, and his family. And then comes the flood, right? That's what we've seen as we've gone through all of these chapters together. And then in chapter 10, after the flood, we see the repopulation of humanity in what we call the table of nations. Those 70 names that's very difficult to pronounce. Uh, what is all that? Well, there we learn where, who we are and where we've come from. Um, it's not an exhaustive answer to who we are or where we come from, but it's an important lesson nevertheless. Who are we? We're each sons and daughters 
of Noah. Where did we come from? Same answer. We've come from Noah. And one of the burdens I had last week was to show that we're cousins. All of us. We're cousins. That the white man and the black man are cousins. That the, uh, and, and every combination you can come up with. Uh, we're cousins. Um, Noah is our great-grandfather. Now, uh, in the course of our study, we've seen that there's a lot more to us than just simply that. There's more to us than simply that we're cousins. We're told that we're image bearers of God. And along those lines, I mean, if we're asking who we are and where we come from, why don't we go ahead and ask another question that's often asked, why are we here? And we have answered that question several times in the course of our study. But let's answer it again, looking at Genesis 1.26 through 1.28. I invite you to turn there. Keep your place in Genesis 11, but look with me back to Genesis 1.26 and 27. Now these, these passages in verse 28 as well are foundational to understanding who we are, why we're here. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds, the heavens, over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And a few weeks ago, reflecting on these verses, I said in answer of why we're here, I said that we're here to occupy a certain station in life. You know, there's a certain station that we occupy. Um, a station that calls us to be representatives of the Lord to creation. Uh, a station that calls us to carry out the Lord's will. A station that causes us, or calls us rather, to uh, reflect God's glory and His beauty and um, His character. Now, with this introduction in mind, let's go back to Genesis 11 and let's just start with verse 1. I'm not going to be able to really speak about every verse this morning um, that we don't have time to go into every single verse, but I want to take the, the whole section, if you will, uh, in one uh, chunk. In verse 1, we're told that the whole earth had one language and the same words. Uh, it's a little hard for us to imagine that. Um, um, I did some research on that this week and linguists, I was kind of curious how many different languages there are in the world. And linguists tell us, many linguists are of the perspective that we really don't know because not every dialect in the world has been sorted out and studied yet. However, there are some groups uh, that say that the number is uh, 7,099 different languages um, in this world. The, uh, according to the International Bible Society, the whole Bible's been translated into 670 of these languages. And so you see, there's still a long ways to go there. Uh, 670 languages sounds like a lot until we look at some of these other numbers. The New Testament has been translated into 1,521 languages. So we see there's still much work to be done in terms of this. But in verse 1, we're told that there was only one language. That would have made it really simple, wouldn't it? Um, 
only one language. Communication would have been impossible between the entire human race. Uh, verse 2 tells us, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verses 3 and 4, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I want to point your attention to these verses. If you look at these verses closely with me, I want to point your attention to what's going on here. In one universal language, they say, Come. You know, in one universal language, they say, Come. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city. Come, let us build ourselves a tower. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. That's the agenda. So in one universal language, in one accord, they say, let's make bricks. Let's build ourselves a city. Let's build ourselves a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves. This would be a gigantic task. It would require enormous effort. It would be very difficult. And we have to wonder, what could possibly be the purpose of this? Why would they want to do such a thing? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 4. They're doing this so they would not be, quote, dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, one of the reasons of going back to Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28 was just as a review. The Lord has commanded humanity to be fruitful and to multiply and to what? Fill the whole earth. And here they are in one voice, gathered together in one place, constructing this city so that they could defiantly disobey the Lord. We will not fill this earth. We're going to stay right here. Much of the time we think of this story as the Tower of Babel, but do not forget there's a city being built here. And it's the humanist, secular, godless city. That's what it is. It's a city whose foundation is man. It's a city whose foundation is the achievement of man. It's a city whose savior is technology. The technology of the day was bricks and mortar. That was the technology. It's more than a city. It's a lifestyle. It's a man-centered, self-centered, self-glorifying, self-sufficient lifestyle. And it's born out of a man-centered Worldview sounds hauntingly familiar, doesn't it? It should. The commentators remind us that this is a deeply religious activity. I can remember reading this story as a boy out of a children's Bible. Well, I don't even think it was a children's Bible. It had children stuck, kind of children stuff on the covers, you know. But as I recall, I think it was a, it was a paraphrase. It might have been the New Living Translation or something. I remember mom and dad bought it for me when I was a kid, and I. I can remember reading. I can remember reading this story, and I can remember thinking, 
how in the world did they ever think they were going to build a tower that go all the way to the heavens? I mean, how did you, has anyone ever read that and thought, how did they think they were going to get all the way to the heavens? Well, I didn't, I didn't know a whole lot of Hebrew back then. I knew some. We all know some. We know like Hosanna and, you know, we know Shalom. We know a few. You actually know more than you realize. Elohim. We know some. We know some Hebrew. But one of the words I didn't know was Shemaim. That's the word that's in that verse. Come, let us build ourselves a city in a tire with its tops in the Shemaim. In, it can be translated heavens. But it can also be translated sky. Now, were they trying to build a tower that went all the way up into the heavens? I'm not sure. I, it's possible. Maybe they thought that, but I really don't think so as I've reflected on it. I don't, I don't think they thought that. I'll tell you why I don't think they thought that. Because I don't think they really wanted to go to heaven. I don't think they wanted to go to heaven. I mean, that is secular man, isn't it? Does secular man really want to go to heaven? It's not been my observation. We don't want to go to heaven. What we want to do is we want to bring heaven down to here. We, we don't want to go to heaven. We want heaven right here. We want to stay here as secular people. We want heaven right here because we want things to center on us. Heaven doesn't sound like a place where things are going to center on us. This is a deeply religious endeavor. Look how hard it is. Making bricks out in that sun. It takes enormous effort to rebel against God like this. What could possibly be behind this deeply religious endeavor? One of the issues, and the issue I want to take up this morning is an issue I want to call a crisis of significance. A crisis of significance. Remember, they, they, the Scriptures say they want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. What's that all about? Well, they want to be great. Why do, why do they need to be great? Because rebellion creates a significance crisis. It has to. What is the significance of man? This is another reason why I wanted to go back to Genesis 126, 27, and 28. What is so significant about mankind? What is significant about us is we've been created in the Imago Dei. We've been created in the image of God. Its significance is not about our achievements or our technology. I mean, why the, ser why, why the search for significance anyway? Why do we press on for this? Why do we behave like this? Because hopefully by now we're already seeing a little reflection of our hearts here, aren't we? I hope so. I hope that when we stare at this passage, we actually see a mirror reflecting our own hearts back to us. If we don't, we're, we're, not, we're not open to the passage yet. Because we can see a reflection of ourselves here. Why do we need to be great achievers? Why does a person go to seminary and get a 96 on a test and be upset with it? Because it's not 100%. Why would a person do that? Seminary's hard. 96 is pretty good. Not 100. Why does a person do that? Why do we need to be great achievers? Why do we put ourselves through this? The answer is simple. It's because we are significant. We are significant. 
That's why we want to be significant. But what makes us significant is not our achievements. It's the fact we've been created in the image of God. That's what makes us significant. But when we go down the secular, humanist, godless road, well, then there's no God left down that road. And when there's no God left, well, if there's no God, then there's no image of God in which to be created in, is there? And we lose our significance. And if there's no image, well, now we've got a huge problem. Suddenly there's no significance. And really, at the end of the day, if we're down that road far enough, we're going to one day wake up and say, what's the difference between us and the animals? We're really not much more important than the animals. Of course, we're hearing that today, aren't we? Well, if you go down that road, that's the logical conclusion. What other conclusion could you come to? I love animals. Don't misunderstand me when I say this, but we'll see people more. They're they're going to be more in tune to save the wells than they are going to be to save the babies. When we're left to pick up the heavy weight of creating our own significance, that's what happens. We're left to pick up a heavy weight of trying to create our own significance. And boy, we pay a price for this, don't we? Having lost our name, Now we've got to try to recover it. We've got to try to search for a name. And everywhere we look, we see people are trying to do this. People are are building their religious towers. You know, sometimes they're in the form of a big pile of bricks that we call home. Sometimes they're in the form of a career. They could really be in the form of anything. Our, Our religious towers. Our religious towers. Now... The story we come to this morning is a sad story of Babylon. And Babylon in the Scriptures is an emblem of self-glorification. It's an emblem of self-sufficiency, of man-centeredness, of godlessness, of materialism, lifestyle, all of it. The whole worldview. It's emblematic of all of that. And the rest of our chapter, the reason I've included the whole chapter this morning is because the rest of our chapter is God's response to this. Really, beginning with verse 5, God responds. If you look there with me, you'll see the beginning of His response. The Lord come down to see the city and the tower which the children of man built. Boy, at one point this week, as I was reflecting on that verse, I was overcome by the love of God in that verse. And then someone said, what do you mean by that? This is a moment here. This is a moment the, the love that's present in it. This is a moment where a heavenly parent, okay, where a heavenly parent says, it's quiet back there. What are the kids up to? We got some parents in the room, you know what I'm talking about. It's quiet back there. What are they up to? Your parents, you already know what they're up to. You go back any way to check it out, don't you? You go back to check it out. That's what's going on in verse 5. Our heavenly parent says, what are they doing? And he comes down to check out what they're doing. As parents, we've done this many times. Look at the love of this. The love of God coming down to His children to see what they're doing. And in verse 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord said, behold, there are one people and they have... One language, and this is the only, only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. I, I actually reflect on this verse a lot. Uh, I reflect on this verse a lot. I'll tell you why. 
How ingenious is this? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the ingenuity here on God's part? I mean, all he has to do to put this whole thing down is just simply confuse their languages. He doesn't even, even begin to exert even the slightest bit of effort, and the whole thing is put away. They know, can no longer understand each other. So they put their toys down, and they scatter, which is what God wanted them to do anyway. You see how silly and foolish it is to try to thwart God's plans and God's commands? And the whole thing, the unfinished work here, I mean, it, it's, it's really left for the future generations to laugh at because that's often what happens when a big project is started and the pride of the big project, the pomp of the big project, all of the, the to-do about the big project goes only to discover there's not enough money to finish the big project and there it lays and with weeds to grow up around it for future generations to mock and to laugh. And every generation since then has continued to look at this and laugh. But yet every generation has continued to do exactly the same thing. 21st century America is doing the same foolishness as that of our text. And this foolishness will continue to take place until the Lord returns. It will continue until the Lord returns. One comment about this before we move on. Notice the words that are embedded in uh, verses 6 and 7. Namely, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It's easy to misunderstand those verses. What is meant by those verses is simply this. Humanity is on a dangerous, reckless uh, quest as they're in one accord going down this road. And what is God doing? He's breaking it up so that we don't destroy ourselves. That's what's meant by that. God is restraining and protecting humanity from certain destruction. Now, the Lord continues. I mean, the, the, the Father has a plan for the salvation of man. It doesn't involve bricks and mortar. He introduces it in Genesis 3.15. And here in verses 10-32, through 32, we see the plan slowly unfolding in this list of names. You know, the list that begins the generations of Shem. And then we have this list of names that are hard for us to uh, pronounce. What is the point of this? What are the point of all of these names? A bridge. It's a bridge. As I said in the introduction, this chapter is a bridge from the table of nations to one particular individual. It's a bridge from Shem, who is the son of Noah, to Abram, who is the son of Terah. Let me repeat that. It's a bridge from Shem, the son of Noah, to Abram, the son of Terah. Now, Abram would later be renamed as Abraham. And um, Abram means exalted father. Abraham means uh, father of the faithful or uh, chief of the multitude. A couple of different ways it could be, it could be uh, translated. And we know from Joshua 24.2 that a Abraham was a man who worshipped and served false gods. He was a man who worshipped and served false gods, but God called Abraham, and Abraham followed. God called Abraham just like He called us. And Abraham followed, and we're going to be studying this for the next several chapters, but 
There's a, he, there's a detail that's given to us in, in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, as many of you are familiar, Hebrews 11 is a, is a, a chapter. It's kind of like the, the hall of fame of the faithful, if you will. And, and Abraham is mentioned. And interestingly enough, in verse 10 of Hebrews 11, this is what's said about Abraham. Abraham was a man who was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's an interesting comment, isn't it? In lieu of the context of our text, isn't it? Abraham was a man who looked to a city whose designer and builder is God. It's a different kind of city. It's not a city that's built on human self-sufficiency. It's not a city that's built on secular humanism. It's not a city that's built on self and self-glorification. But it's a city whose designer and builder is God. It's a city that's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, isn't it? Because it's a city for the church. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And in Christ, the search for true significance ends. I mean, Jesus, as per His human nature, He shows us the way. How, How does He do it? The Apostle Paul nails it. And I would invite you to turn here. I think it would be beneficial if you turn to Philippians chapter 2 so that you could follow along. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, particularly. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. While you're turning there, I'll read some of the. I'll, I'll start with verse 6. Though he, that is Jesus, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And remember, Jesus is two natures. There's the fully, fully human, fully, fully uh, human, and fully divine. Now, in terms of his, his, his divinity, he was equal. He's equal with God. He is God. In terms of his humanity, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse seven. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, listen to that. The name. The name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we see that True exaltation does not come from trying to make a name for yourself. It's not how it's, or trying to build a city apart from God. It comes from him, humble dependence on the Father, always seeking His will for His glory. Now, in our sins, we hate that idea. In our sins, in our flesh, the flesh, the world, the evil one hates this idea. Uh, but we look, we look to Christ. He humbles Himself. I mean, this is the very opposite of Babel. I mean, this is the very opposite of the world. Jesus humbled Himself. He was not out to make a name for Himself. No, He made Him. our text tells us He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He was obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He had the full certainty that the way of the Father was the best way. He had full certainty of this. And we're told in the end of verse 9 through verse 11, that God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
And here we see that true exaltation does not come from trying to make a name for ourselves. That's not how it works. It comes in humble dependence upon the Father, seeking always to do His will. And there the weight's removed. Jesus says something interesting in Matthew 11, verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. As we think about human achievement and greatness. There is risen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus' appraisal of things. This is Jesus' estimate of things. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. But listen to what He says next. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than He. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than He. What makes the least in the kingdom so great? There's lots of things that could be said, but I'm just going to offer you two for the sake of time. Our minds can only take so much of the time. I don't have much more. We're almost done. But just two things. One is the perfection of Jesus credited to the believer. What makes the least in the kingdom so great? Because the least in the kingdom, when he or she, whoever he or she is, when they put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, the perfect righteousness of Jesus was credited to them. There's true greatness. His perfect record credited to the sinner. But secondly, at the moment that he or she, that is the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven, whoever he or she is, the moment that he or she put his or her faith in Christ, that moment he or she, whoever he or she is, was adopted into the family. In the South, they have a saying that goes like, do you know who my daddy is? Now that can be a real wretched saying. But in this case, it's a wonderful saying. Do you know who our father is? I'm not referring to earthly fathers here. I'm referring to the Father in heaven. Do you know who my father is? What value do you put to that? No, salvation cannot come by mortar and bricks. It does not come by semiconductors or biotechnology, nor can it come by being great. Um, so in conclusion, we see the madness and I might add the sadness of rebelling against God. It, we see the significance crisis it creates and we see the road of destruction that it's on. I can remember years ago, I was thinking about this, this thought came to me while we were singing. I remember years ago, of uh, listening to a, a guitar player. He was one of the, really one of the great guitar players. Uh, not all of us would know his name. I'm going to leave his name out of it. But he was truly a great guitar player. And I remember spending a lot of time with his music, working out his music note for note until I could play it, until I could play the album and just play right along with the album and just cruise right along with him. Spent hours doing this, working this out. And, and this man, when he played, he attracted crowds, especially overseas, especially in Europe and Japan. He attracted crowds of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. 
And I, just as, as recently as maybe three or four years ago, I was watching him on YouTube, watching him still perform, playing all those songs. And I noticed that there was something really different about him. He just wasn't on top of his game like he once was. And I poked around a little bit on the internet and found out why. He was generally very, very intoxicated when he, when he played. He, he, had, he was pretty much drunk all the time until just a couple of years ago. I don't recall the date, but uh, he was found dead in an apartment um, while vacationing. Uh, with his family, and he had uh, died from consuming too much alcohol. Uh, he, was re he was regarded by many people as one of the greatest guitar players who has ever lived. Dead. Drunk. Trying to find significance. It's disastrous to go down that road. People like myself sat in their bedrooms and tried to learn all his songs best they could, note for note. If anyone wants to argue that there's no significance crisis, well then, hey, why are so many people trying to make a name for themselves? You explain it. Why? Why are they killing themselves? Because that's what they're doing, slowly killing themselves. Fact is, the Father has shown us a better road. It's a road to salvation in Christ, and the least in His kingdom is greater than the greatest in this kingdom. Did you get that? The least in the Father's kingdom is greater than the greatest in this kingdom. There's not even a contest. There's not even a contest. Fact is, we're significant because we've been created in the image of God, and that means that all human beings are significant. That means that all of us are significant in this respect. And we've been placed in a certain station, if you like. And listen, when we go through those doors, we, we have the privilege. And it's a privilege. We have the privilege of representing the Father. That's a privilege that we have. Of representing the Father. You know, when a country sends a representative or an ambassador, they're, 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 the honor is shown to them. Why? Because they represent the nation that they come from. When we go through those doors, we are representatives of who? We're representatives of a kingdom. We're representatives of a king. And it's a glorious privilege to be that. And we got the privilege of carrying the Lord's will. We got the, we got the ability to understand what it is and the ability to carry it out. In Christ Jesus, we have that ability. Apart from Christ, we do, not have the, we do not have that ability. But in Christ Jesus, we have the ability to carry it out. And in Christ Jesus, we have the glorious privilege of reflecting His character and beauty and glory. That's significance, amen? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this ancient story that though it is ancient, it happened many years ago, how many years I think would be difficult to say. But Father, we don't need to travel back in time to see the story. We can look right out the window. And unfortunately, Father, we can look to our own hearts and see our own quest, trying to be great, trying to make a name for ourselves. But Father, as we said in an earlier message, we can't be on about ourselves and on about you simultaneously. 
Father, we're on for one or the other. Father, forgive us. Forgive us, O Father, of pursuing these ends. And Father, work in our hearts, we pray. Give us grace that, Father, we would see the beauty and the glory of following You in the likeness of Christ Jesus. Empower us to these ends, O Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.